This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. What is there to say about Hawaii other than spam and pineapple? Oh yeah, volcanoes. This place is a destination for way too many tourists. From what I hear, it's hot and expensive. Personally, I'm kind of fat and poor and probably wouldn't last two days down there. Hawaii was the last state to be admitted into the Union. I mentioned all the way back in the Alaska episode that there are only two states that never had the death penalty. Hawaii is the second one. Unlike their northern counterpart, they executed a shitload of people before becoming a state. Their history with capital punishment dates all the way back to the early 1800s. The vast majority of the people executed in Hawaii were Filipino, with a few native Hawaiians, Japanese, and Chinese people as well. The only method ever used here was hanging. It gets the job done, I suppose. Grab your Bible, your leather jacket, and your sunglasses. That's a Dog the Bounty Hunter reference if you didn't get it. Let's get into some murder. So along with all those other Asian and native people, one white guy was executed in Hawaii. An Irishman by the name of John O'Connell was convicted of an absolutely disgusting murder. O'Connell was illiterate and had arrived in Hawaii on a cargo ship, which he abandoned. He was a common laborer with a particularly fucked up interest in children. On January 3rd, 1906, he kidnapped a boy named Simeon Wharton, who was the son of a prominent native family. His body was found in a field, dismembered, decapitated, and disemboweled. These injuries had been inflicted with a hatchet and a knife. Newspapers called the crime the work of a human pervert, but not necessarily a lunatic. O'Connell had dug a shallow grave in the field and later went on to explain that the only reason he mutilated the boy so badly was that his body wouldn't fit in the grave in one piece. John O'Connell was known to be backward and shrunken and probably retarded as well. Thanks, Hawaiian Journal of History. That was a hell of a description. Fitting, though. Definitely fitting. John O'Connell was executed by hanging on May 31st, 1906 there's no information on his last words or last meal. Just three years after John O'Connell was executed, a Japanese boy by the name of Miles Fukunaga would take his first breath. He grew up in a poor family and took his education very seriously. To help his impoverished parents, he started working at Queen's Hospital. Nearly all of his money was given to his parents to help support them and his five younger siblings, but he kept a small piece for himself which he used to go to the movies and buy books. Former teachers would say that Fukunaga was a very bright student who enjoyed reading. He wanted to continue his education, but due to the family's financial struggles, he was unable to. These financial struggles seem like a possible motive for what he would go on to do. The Hawaiian Trust Company managed a lease agreement of the house his family rented. A rent collector would come after the family over a $20 debt, which angered Fukunaga. He would develop a hatred for the company and select his victim based on ties to it. After learning that Gil Jamieson was the vice president's son, he knew what he had to do. 
Gil was kidnapped and held for ransom. Fukunaga ended up collecting about $4,000. That's 1920s money. Today, that'd be worth a hell of a lot more. I mean, this is back when a $20 debt was substantial. The reason he went after Gil's family for money was so he could give it to his parents and have them return to Japan. Noble, I guess, but that's a really fucked up way to go about it. Gil was bludgeoned to death, and a further $10,000 was requested in ransom money after he was already dead. Just four days later, Fukunaga would be arrested and confess to his crime. Court-appointed psychiatrists would argue that because he knew the difference between right and wrong, Fukunaga was legally sane. A professor at the University of Hawaii would later conclude that he was in fact suffering from a dissociated personality. Unfortunately for Miles Fukunaga, this study would not be completed until his trial was over. Maybe mental illness would have saved his skin. Maybe not. This is 1920s Hawaii, which I've come to realize was a very fucking racist place to be. The Japanese were not well liked in this era anywhere in the US, but it seems that Hawaii had a particular disdain for them. The professor would argue that a force had overtaken Fukunaga and that he wasn't in control of himself when he killed Gil. According to the Territorial Insanity Act of 1925, having something like this come over a person would brand them legally insane. In this case, the force was the desire for revenge against the Hawaiian Trust Company. None of Fukunaga's attorneys considered this as a factor in an insanity defense. Fukunaga also stated that he wanted to die. He'd already attempted suicide twice and failed. Knowing that murder would get him the death penalty, he figured this was a sure thing. Working long hours at a dead-end job with no light at the end of the tunnel made him extremely unhappy. This, combined with his inability to continue his education, led him into a deep depression. Fukunaga was also kind of a loner, stating that the books he read in his free time were his only friends. I'm starting to almost feel for the guy. That life can't be fucking easy. No reason to kill a 10-year-old, but still. Fukunaga told the police, I hope you are getting this. I am not crazy. I'm as sane as ever. Because Fukunaga was Japanese, his execution was seen as rushed. The native Hawaiian people wanted revenge on him for killing one of their own. Like I said, this is the 1920s. The anti-Japanese movement was at its peak. Less than three weeks after the crime, Fukunaga was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. In his case, delaying the trial probably would have helped him out. It would have given his defense attorneys time to give him a proper psychiatric exam and prepare a defense. Then again, he wanted to die, so who knows. His execution was scheduled shortly after the trial ended, but his appeals would delay it for a little over a year. Racism plagued this case. Most of the jurors who convicted him stated under oath that they had already formed an opinion about his guilt or innocence. They did also say that they could give him a fair trial, but that sounds like bullshit to me. Fukunaga's attorneys were native Hawaiians and did not challenge the statements of the jurors. They even managed to fuck up during the trial, saying that Fukunaga had in fact killed Gil and offering no defense for him. They didn't bother cross-examining witnesses. Hell, they didn't even call any witnesses on their own behalf. Fukunaga was a Japanese-American. Who gave a shit? The trial went on for two days before a guilty verdict was reached and a death sentence was imposed. 
The Japanese-American community continuously supported Fukunaga and helped fund his defense. The Supreme Court declined to hear his last appeal in October of 1929, so his fellow community members sent several petitions to Governor Lawrence Judd. They requested that Fukunaga have his sentence commuted to life without parole, but their pleas fell on deaf ears. Miles Yukata Fukunaga was executed by hanging on November 19, 1929, at the age of 20. He got his wish. A sad life of busting ass to take care of his family was finally over. After his death, around 6,000 Japanese Americans attended an outdoor gathering that was seen as a public protest of his execution. I'm on the fence with this one. While I understand the outrage of a community plagued by racism, I also see a man who intentionally committed a crime because he knew he would die for it. He wanted to go. He killed a little boy. He got what was coming to him. There is no available information on his last words or last meal. Much like with the Alaska episode, I'm struggling to find well-documented cases. Though there is an abundance of them, all of these took place before 1950. Most of what I can find is a newspaper clipping or a brief mention on a government website. The last person to be executed by the territory of Hawaii shares a handful of similarities with Miles Fukunaga. I can't find much about the early life of Adriano Domingo. He was born in 1910 in the Philippines and appeared on a 1930 census report living in Koloa, Hawaii with a woman he was not married to. I imagine Domingo faced a lot of the same racial issues as Miles, being a Filipino man living in Hawaii. Doesn't excuse his crime though, at all. On August 3, 1943, a 21-year-old secretary named Helen Sakamoto was walking through a sugarcane field close to her home. She encountered Domingo, who made romantic advances toward her. She was not interested and rejected him. This angered Domingo, who attempted to rape her before grabbing a pair of scissors and stabbing her to death. When Helen didn't arrive home on time, her father, Junichi, headed a search for her. She was found lifeless in the field a few hours later. It didn't take long for Domingo to be arrested for the crime. By August 5th, he was in custody. Just one week later, a grand jury indicted him on a first-degree murder charge. Domingo was appointed an attorney who entered a not-guilty plea on his behalf the following day. His trial began on August 30th, 1943, and lasted less than two weeks. An insanity defense was their strategy. Why do they always go for insanity? Sometimes people snap and do something absolutely crazy, like bite the face off a homeless guy, but rape doesn't seem like a crime committed by the legally insane. It's more a violent psychopath kind of crime. On September 11, 1943, an 11-man jury took two and a half hours to decide Domingo's fate. He was guilty. Five days later, Judge Philip L. Rice sentenced him to death. Perhaps Hawaii learned a lesson about executing people who were potentially crazy. Before his execution, Domingo faced a sanity commission. They determined that he was not criminally insane and was therefore eligible for execution. Their findings were sent to the territorial governor, Ingram Stainback, who signed Domingo's death warrant on December 29th. 
the execution was scheduled for January 7th. Stainback said that after reviewing the Sanity Commission's findings, he could find no mitigating circumstances that could change Domingo's fate. Adriano Domingo was executed by hanging on January 7, 1944. His final moments were spent with the prison chaplain. He was led up to the gallows and asked for a final statement, which he refused to give. The rope was put around his neck at 8.08 a.m., and the trap door opened soon after. He was pronounced dead at 8.27 a.m. No family members came to claim his body, so he was buried in the prison cemetery, where I'm assuming he still remains to this day. There is no information available on his last meal. It is 2023, and as a straight white female, I am honestly sick of everything being turned into a race issue. I was raised to believe that assholes come in all shapes, sizes, and colors, and we should treat everyone equally. Back before Hawaii was a state, racism was rampant. Non-natives were discriminated against constantly, and this is what would help bring about the end of the death penalty in Hawaii. James Majors and John Palakiko were two convicts serving time in Oahu for burglary. While on a work gang in Chinatown, they escaped and took a bus as far as it would go. The following evening, they broke into the home of Teresa Wilder, a wealthy 68-year-old widow. All they wanted was some food, but they'd leave a trail of destruction in their wake. Teresa was beaten and tied up by the men before being gagged with a towel. The next day, Palakiko was arrested and confessed to what they had done, even telling police that Majors had raped Teresa. Her body was found four days later, and her cause of death was determined to be suffocation from the towel wrapped around her face. Due to an advanced state of decomposition, it was unable to be determined if she had been sexually assaulted. It would come out in a later court hearing that Palakiko only confessed and accused Majors of rape because a detective had beaten him. Majors claimed in the same hearing that he was threatened with a beating and also not shown a copy of the statements he apparently made to police. Their confessions were the primary evidence used to convict them. A multiracial coalition was formed and attempted to have the death sentences in this case commuted to life. This coalition was made up of a melting pot of people, including Native Hawaiian homesteaders, Democratic Party leaders, and Christian ministers. Some lawyers even took on this case pro bono and filed appeals on behalf of the men. All of these appeals were unsuccessful, but they did raise the glaring issues of racial injustice in the case, which would later urge the Republican governor, Samuel King, to reduce their sentences to life with parole. Democrats would later take over the territorial legislature for the first time in Hawaiian history. Immediately after gaining control, they introduced bills in the Senate and the House of Representatives that would end the death penalty. Normally I'd be rolling my eyes because Democrats have a detailed history of fucking things up, but the Hawaiians kinda had a point. Racism was an actual issue here at the time. Members of the same coalition that helped Majors and Palakiko get reduced sentences spoke in favor of the bills. The final version of the law that was adopted would let the jury decide if a convicted murderer should get death or life without parole. In 1957, the Democrats passed another bill that fully abolished capital punishment in Hawaii, 
which Governor Samuel King signed into law. I say this in pretty much every episode. Some people do not deserve to live on this earth. The death penalty exists for a reason. The next guy I'm going to tell you about will have you wishing you could pull the lever yourself. It wouldn't be a last meal without an 80s serial killer, but Hawaii doesn't have any of those who got a death sentence, so I guess some fucked up child abuse will have to suffice. 9 Williams was a 34-year-old man serving his country on an army base in Hawaii. He was a typical soldier living with his wife and five-year-old daughter. There's not much information available on his life prior to the army, but I was able to determine that the woman he was married to was not five-year-old Talia's mother. This combined with his crime leads me to believe that he was kind of a piece of shit, probably abusive, but that's just speculation. On July 16, 2005, Talia Williams died of a head injury. She had been brought to the hospital unresponsive, vomiting, and covered in bruises. It was immediately apparent that this poor little girl did not have an easy life. She had suffered at the hands of her father and stepmother for seven long months before her pain finally ended. Discipline is an important part of parenting. There are other, much better ways to deal with behavioral issues, but I'm not against a smack on the ass if a child misbehaves badly enough. Naeem and Delilah Williams took discipline to an extreme level. Delia had bathroom issues. Some kids do. I can't help but wonder if there was some psychological tie to it due to the abuse she suffered, but her father claimed that his discipline was aimed at Talia because she kept having accidents. The evidence at trial showed that Talia was punched repeatedly commanded to eat her own feces, hit with a ruler, starved, and forced to do difficult exercises until she physically couldn't anymore. Those exercises were followed by a beating. She was also duct taped to a bedpost and whipped with a belt. This little girl was five. Talia's cause of death was a head injury that she sustained while her father beat her. She had slammed her head backwards into the floor and ended up having a seizure. This beating was punishment for having an accident. The military police investigated the house and found blood splatters on the wall from when Talia had been whipped with a belt. Again, this child was five. Delilah Williams took a plea deal. She pled guilty to first-degree murder and agreed to testify against her husband in exchange for a 20-year sentence. I will never understand why women get away with shit like this. From what I gather, she was just as guilty. Why she walked away with 20 years while her husband faced a death sentence. Oh shit, did I just say that? Because this crime took place on a military base, Naeem Williams was facing federal charges. This meant that even though he was in a state where capital punishment had been abolished, he was staring down a death sentence. A well-deserved one if you ask most people, myself included. Apparently, a prospective juror who thinks the death penalty is immoral can be disqualified from serving on the jury. When you think about it, jurors are instructed to keep an open mind. How can you keep your mind open to such a possibility if you outright disagree with it from the start? The director of the Hawaii Innocence Project feels differently about it than I do, though. How do you get a jury of all your peers when the only ones who can sit on there are those who believe in capital punishment? 
The better question is, how can you get a fair sentence with a jury who refuses to put someone to death? How is giving someone the needle worse than beating a five-year-old girl to death for peeing her pants? I'm biased, I know, but calm the fuck on. Naeem Williams was convicted of first-degree murder in June of 2014 and sentenced to life without parole. The jury deadlocked at 8-4 to four in favor of the death penalty. So I guess my first question is, why the fuck did it take nine years to put him on trial? Holy shit. I thought we had the right to a speedy trial in this country. Also, how can anyone look at the evidence of this case and think he deserves anything less than death? He beat his daughter to death because she had an accident. After court, one juror told the media that he still felt strongly that Williams should die for his crime. Talia Williams got a death sentence for something that no one could even consider to be a crime. Why the fuck should the man who killed her get to live? Rest in peace, Talia. Fuck it, we're doing a serial killer. Why not? That last case left a bad taste in my mouth. June 30th, 1931 saw the birth of a little boy named Walter Barrett. Although he was born in Oakland, California, he'd end up in Hawaii and attend high school in Honolulu until he dropped out in ninth grade. Barrett joined the army and served in the Korean War, but his alcoholism landed him a dishonorable discharge in 1955. After this, he began a relationship with a woman named Annie Phillips. She was divorced and had five children. As a mom myself, I can understand the unwillingness to put up with bullshit. Barrett was unemployed and drank like a fish. Those are two qualities you don't want in a man, especially if you have five kids to take care of. So she left him. Unable to deal with being rejected by Annie, Barrett decided that he'd take her life. Armed with a gun, he made his way to her apartment complex and forced his way inside. Two of Annie's kids were watching TV when Barrett walked past them and went into the bedroom where Annie was taking care of her youngest. Without giving her any time to react, he pulled a gun on her and shot her several times. She died immediately. Because of all the noise, the neighbors rushed in to see what was going on. They held Barrett down until police arrived. At trial, Barrett claimed that he was so shit-faced he couldn't remember the shooting. Witnesses denied this and claimed he'd said, she deserved it. The evidence was overwhelming and Barrett was found guilty. He received a life sentence. That should be the end of the story, but it isn't. His sentence was reduced to 15 to 50 years. In 1967, he was paroled. The murder took place in 1959. He was released in 1967. Do the math on that one. Eight years. Eight fucking years for killing a mother of five in cold blood. Good job, Governor John Burns. An eight-year minimum term to get parole was a real smart idea. Barrett went back to Honolulu after he got out of prison and married a woman named Roberta Aviro in 1971. Like his first real relationship, this marriage didn't last. Roberta filed for divorce in November of 1972 and cited her husband's excessive drinking as the main reason. Just one month after this, Barrett showed up at the hotel she was staying at and stabbed her multiple times with a kitchen knife. He was quickly apprehended and waived his right to a trial. 
this motherfucker pled guilty to manslaughter and was given 10 years. So he served that 10 years, right? No, of course not. He was paroled three years later in 1976. Because for some reason, Hawaii thinks it's okay to let a twice-convicted murderer back out into society. Barrett kept a low profile through the 1980s, living in an apartment on Kenau Street. His drinking and unstable emotions remained a problem, though. A 41-year-old woman named Roxanne Kasner lived across from him. Roxanne had a history of sexual abuse as well as a drug problem, but was still given custody of her 7-year-old son, Ethan. She liked to go kayaking with him. No relationship between Roxanne and Barrett can be confirmed, but Barrett often accused Roxanne of mocking him by dating other men. Some of his friends recalled receiving phone calls from him where he'd hysterically claim he feared that he would hurt Roxanne. After one of these breakdowns, he checked himself into the Queens Medical Center in order to receive psychiatric treatment. He stayed there until August of 1995. When he left the hospital, he learned that Roxanne had moved to a different apartment complex across the street from the old one. This pissed Barrett off. Then again, what didn't? God damn, this dude needs to learn some coping skills. On August 11, 1995, Barrett spent his day drinking beer with his brother and another friend. He made his way to the store for more beer and noticed Roxanne entering her new apartment. Completely out of the blue, he went back home to get his gun. He then ventured across the street and walked past little Ethan on his way into the building. Barrett went into Roxanne's room and shot her twice in the head as soon as she turned to face him. Ethan, who had been playing outside, saw Barrett leave after the murder. He made his way inside and called his father, who then called the police. Ethan would later testify in court to hearing the gunshots that killed his mother. Roxanne managed to make it to the hospital, but later died of her injuries. Police found the gun used to kill Roxanne dumped near the apartment complex. Barrett was long gone, though. An arrest warrant was issued, and the next day, Barrett went to the Columbia Inn and asked the manager to call the cops so he could surrender peacefully. He was charged with murder, theft, and unlawful possession of a firearm, and held on $120,000 bail. Why? He's gone down for killing two other women. There is no reason that bail should be any less than a full million. Ethan was called to testify against Barrett in a preliminary hearing, and he was one of the youngest witnesses to take the stand in Hawaiian history. He claimed to have seen Barrett leave the apartment just minutes after he found his mom's body. Poor Ethan had not only heard the shots that killed her, but also stumbled in to find her lifeless on the floor. Barrett told his attorneys that he wanted to stay in prison until his problem could be dealt with. He got his wish when the judge revoked his bail. At the trial itself, defense attorneys blamed Roxanne's perceived mistreatment of Barrett for his murderous actions. Barrett agreed with them, testifying that he wanted to kill her for constantly choosing all the other guys over him. I don't know, man. Maybe if you weren't such a jealous piece of shit, she'd actually want you? What the hell do I know, though? His jury found him guilty on all counts and he was given an automatic life sentence. The judge also added that he would be required to serve at least 40 years before being eligible for parole. Wow, finally someone gets it kind of right. The prosecutor in this case commended the judge's sentence, stating that Barrett's original life sentence never should have been commuted. 
After sentencing, Barrett was moved to a facility in Oklahoma where he spent most of his time behind bars. His son's wife would contact him once in a while to share pictures of his grandkids. His son hated him too much to reach out. Can't say I blame him there. After being moved back to Hawaii in 2003, Barrett became ill. Eugene Walter Barrett died in a Honolulu prison on November 8, 2003, after serving eight years of his life sentence. Should have seen that one coming. I guess eight years is all you get for murder in Hawaii. That's it for the pineapples and spam state. I feel like I got a sunburn on my soul writing this one. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend. Share my shit all over the internet. I'm available on Rumble as well as most podcast platforms. You can also get me on Instagram at LastMealPod. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.